Healing is an ancient art form. It helps us make sense of our experiences and connects us to community. It has been said that there is no greater connection between two people than when they are storytelling together. But historically, open conversation about adoption has not been encouraged. So we're doing just that. Welcome to the Absolute Love Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Nussel. Welcome to today's episode. So many months ago, I connected with a woman named Paige, who is the owner of Love Grown Adoption Consulting. And she and I had a couple conversations about how we might support one another in the work as adoption professionals. Come to find out we had a whole lot in common. And she was also is also the mother through adoption to two children who were adopted domestically and are of a different racial background than she and her husband are. So Paige and I are going to focus our conversation today on the topic of transracial adoption. And she's going to be sharing her experiences as a transracial adoptive parent, as well as an adoption professional. And we're going to be talking about identity, family and racial culture, the checklist that adoptive parents are asked to fill out when they're selecting, quote, the race they're willing to accept, and then how to be the best parent to an adopted child of a different race than you. Throughout this episode, Paige and I are going to be sharing some resources within the adoption community uh, that can help you on your journey of better understanding transracial adoption. The most important voices in that experience are the adoptees themselves. So you'll find in our show notes, there are links to several transracial adoptees who are sharing their experiences and educating on how their experience might have been improved if their parents had had certain resources or access to certain information. So please make a point to visit those show notes and check out some of the links that we refer you to. At that, let's get chatting. Welcome, Paige. Let's get to it. What makes sense in your sphere of influence? Are you, as a white parent, prepared to parent a child of a different race? Can you, your family, your community, can you support raising a child of color, a child with a different skin tone than you? And do you understand why this is significant? To say, no, I can't parent a child of color feels racist. It feels terrible. But if you've looked at your spheres of influence and can't make space for this child, then do not adopt a child of color. So for example, when we make checklists, right? So when you do your home study, you get to checklist kind of what you, as you worded it, I feel like much better (laughs) (laughs) capable as a a prospective adoptive parent um, parenting right? I think oftentimes a lot of prospective couples view it as what type of child they are looking for in their future. I think what's terrible about that then is it makes prospective adoptive parents think they not, they have a choice, mm-hmm. right? And do you think you need to dig deeper though in what you are comfortable in having in, in your home? Um, but I, oh, I also often get Um, And we did this too. prospective couples who are adopting a second time and they try to mirror their second adoption with the first in open and closed in the relationship and in race and whatever the situation. And I understand why couples do this or or single parents or um, and things like that. But again, that doesn't always play out that way. And I would much rather a family be prepared for that. 
Um, and I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with parenting a child of a different race in your family and parenting a different child of a uh, open or closed relationship. Uh, it's just navigating and explaining that to each child. And um, at least for us too, we include both birth parents and both, like it's our family, right? Um, but I think that that's also something I see and I'm like, I don't, it's, um, I don't want to compare it to anything, but it, I, I get your aim and goal, but that might not always happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and each situation is so different in check boxes, right? Like whatever um, race that child might be or the open or closed box, those things look different um, on every adoption. And even if they look the same, like as a mom bringing home two separate babies who check these two boxes, just because you have openness doesn't mean it's the same as every other openness. And just because you are adopting a, uh, let's say a Native American child, doesn't mean that the adoption is the same each time. So we have to remember that in everything we're doing, the individualization of each adoption is so important to, to keep it fun. And each adoptee, right? Like mm -hmm. your children, even if they have the same air quote circumstances or they're the same race or they have the same openness, which again, openness looks different for right. every situation as mm -hmm. we just said, they have different experiences. They are different people and they're gonna probably, I guarantee have different perspectives on how they view their adoption and how they view everything. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not going to be the same, um, no matter what, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's something, that's a good place to point out that, that I think in our, in our society, we have really everywhere, we have identified race as a way to define a person. And people do that. That's finding categories and assigning labels is how we make sense of things around us. So, you know, all those many years ago, somebody decided that race or the way that your skin looks is a way to categorize people. And unfortunately, what's happened with that is we've assigned uh, characteristics of personality and of strengths and weaknesses to those racial categories that are nonsensical uh, when you're looking at the actual uh, creation of these characteristics. It doesn't come from anything genetic. So we've mutated this idea of race to what it is right now. And that mutation affects how adoption happens very, very intimately. And I don't think that we often look at the race of a child is different than the ethnicity of a child and the culture of a child. And those are two separate separate contexts that have to be thought about when you are considering raising a child that, that might not look like you, might not be from the same ethnic background that you are, or might not be the same race. Um, I, I think those are just commonly mixed up labels and we are encouraged to identify by those labels um really really aggressively <laughs> which as white women um that experience of choosing those categories is less um is often less significant than for a person of color and i think this conversation is something that when you are choosing to adopt outside of your race is important to know. So what I'm meaning is that as a white person, we walk around in the world that mostly looks like us, that is created for us. 
And we don't get that unless we've done the work to recognize that these nuances in literally every single thing we do have been put there to make life easier for people who look like us. And the child that we might be adopting that doesn't look like us has an experience with those things, those nuances in every area of their life that we don't. So firsthand, we can't understand those nuances being different. So our job is to learn those, understand those as much as we can, being an outsider to those experiences, and then help our child process their experiences with those nuances. So let's say we, uh, and I do, I really feel that this is something that when you are adopting, if you're moving forward with the idea that love is love, that race doesn't matter, that I can love any child, that might all be true. But what's also true is that it matters a whole lot to the world, to your child, and it will affect them and you forever in many, many ways. And you have to be prepared to acknowledge that for the health of your child and your family. I would also add love is not enough. Mm -hmm. And you will not always be with your child. Mm -hmm. So I always tell families, you know, we focus on baby all the time, yeah. this whole process. Think about your child. And this is not just, this is an extension even beyond race too, right? But your child will grow up. They will become their own person. They will have their own experiences that will not be protected, air quote, by your whiteness. Um, and you, they need to know how to navigate their own identity and who they are. And they are, like you said, going to have different world experiences than us as white women do, for sure. No question. Mm -hmm. So you need to teach them how to navigate that. And um, you can't do that until you've educated yourself. I also, some families I feel like who are not comfortable raising a child of a different race feel like guilt or shame by saying that. And I, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily agree with the feeling. I, I get why people feel that way. It's almost like they feel racist by identifying that um, because I don't often think agencies, I'm blanketing a lot of agencies, do enough work in race and ethnicity or transracial adoption in the home study process. Um, I know for, you know, a lot of home studies that I see, they don't even ask like base level questions of prospective adoptive couples in regards to race, like where you live and um, what are you going to surround your child? And then that's the other thing too, not just surrounding your child with um, like characters and books and and um, dolls and things like that, but positive mm -hmm. reflections of their own identity. Um, Let's knock that back because I think this is really where it all starts for families. So you get this checklist and it says, what characteristics are you willing to accept in a child? We're going to use that icky language. Um, that's what you'll see. So as a, as a family going into this, looking to adopt, start looking at that checklist as what makes sense in my sphere of influence. Are you, as a white parent, prepared to parent a child of a different race? Can you, your family, your community, can you support raising a child of color, a child with a different skin tone than you? And do you understand why this is significant? To say, no, I can't parent a child of color feels racist. It feels terrible. But if you've looked at your spheres of influence and can't make space for this child, then do not adopt a child of color. 
So for example, if your, let's say, aunt, uncle are racist, either overt or covert, and you attend every holiday celebration with them, if you are not willing to teach that aunt and uncle and do that work before a child comes home or disengage from them entirely, then those holiday celebrations become unsafe spaces for your child. If you, if you live in a completely white neighborhood and there's not a person of color around, not only that, but how about the school, the doctor, the uh, school bus, library, everywhere they go, there has, there, there's no encounters with a healthy person of color. Then you have to think, are you willing to move? Are you going to commute somewhere that your child can have access to people of color that he or she can build these organic relationships with? And are you, do you have access? Do you have the interest? Do you have the ability in building these organic relationships around you with people of color? If you can't do that, if you can't move, if you can't do that work, if you don't know how to do that work, if you're not willing to do that work, well then yes, please tell me that you cannot parent a child of color. And I'm gonna say, I agree with you. I don't think that these three things that we've just talked about would support healthy life for a child of color in your family. So don't do it. <laughs> I'll also add the broader sense of adoption and transracial adoption. Um, even what you think things may be, um, I would magnify that times 10 of the challenges that you're gonna have. And I'm just speaking from my own pr perspective. I remember, again, just the layer of adoption, right? Explaining that to friends and family. I personally felt like a lot of, I lost a lot of friends, air quote, and family members who didn't take the time to understand, right, the correct vocabulary to use around my child or just understand adoption the way that it was important for me um, to have them around my child, let alone adding, right, that other piece of transracial adoption. So again, you can, um, again, project what you think people in your life are going to, how they're going to behave and how, what they're going to care about. Um, but I would also like times 10 magnify that, that there are going to be people in your life that are maybe even near and dear to you that are going to surprise you um, on how they react again, adoption wise and transracial adoption too, mm -hmm. that you need to be willing to, to sever those relationships for the health of your child and yeah, and possibly relocate your, where you live. Um, and again, like I said, surrounding yourself identity wise and having friends and family or people in your community that reflect your child's identity in a positive manner. Um, so I always make the joke too of like, it's not just hair care yeah. um, and hair care is very important. And I, I, I love a hair care training. Um, I, if you have not done it, please do it. But right. It's beyond, just hair care training. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I was going to say too, I think, I always say this, I think learning history of adoption is so important. So there's a ton of books I always recommend people read um, because I think understanding history of adoption, understanding the history of transracial adoption in the United States is incredibly important in my opinion, um, especially as a, a white person pursuing potentially transracial adoption. There is a book that I recommend. It's a little expensive on Amazon. It's like $30, but it's called Somebody's Children, The Politics of Transracial and Transnational Adoption. Um, and it's by Laura Briggs. It is a great book for those wanting to really understand essentially why, because um, around the you know 70s and 80s, just to be quick, 
um, it was it was not a transracial adoption was not recommended by most entities. And unfortunately, because foster care was so um, inundated with uh, those children of color and like disproportionately so. Right. So you look at the demographic of the United States disproportionately. So you're seeing children of color in foster care. They opened it up. Um, essentially, uh, and said it would be more okay um, for families that were white to adopt transracially. And I, obviously now, I mean, you look at the statistics, I think more a majority of adoptions are transracial adoptions. Mm -hmm. But it's just interesting, in my opinion, to look at the shift and look at the, um, unfortunately, too, just agencies discriminating against African-American families pursuing adoption, um, and obviously just looking at the politics of the United States and what has led to all these things. But I think that's really important. The other thing I always recommend, I don't know if I would recommend a perspective, yeah, maybe, perspective couples. So there's a lot of Facebook groups. Um, I'm not like a super fan of Facebook groups, but this is the one case where I am. There are, it's called culturally fluent groups that are led by African-American women that I would recommend not commenting, just sit in and listen for, I would say four months before ever commenting on anything. Um, but that there are a lot of great things to think about that aren't just hair care, um, like holiday traditions, right? Mm -hmm. um, and African-American families celebrate, I think Thanksgiving, we were just talking about on that group, very differently than like a white family. And how are you incorporating your child's identity and culture into your holiday traditions? Um, but yeah, there's lots of different topics that get brought up that are things that I think often we as white people would not think about or not even think to think about, right? Mm -hmm. And so that group is really going to maybe, again, give you a better idea of, of the things you might not, air quote, be prepared for until you're in it. When you're looking at, at, at that idea, one of the things I've heard a lot from adoptees who were adopted transracially is that they often don't know that they're missing a lot of these culturally significant uh, experiences until they get out on their own. And college for a lot of transracial adoptees is really challenging because it's sometimes the first time that you are in a room with people who look like you. Yep. And because you've been raised by a white family and maybe a white community and predominantly white experiences, while you might have had all the love and care in the world, you are still missing the experiences that bind you to a ethnically similar group, a culturally similar group that you belong. So when you get out into the world and everyone at college who looks like you understands certain, uh, let's say a language, hairstyles, uh, experiences, um, traditions that are historically, let's say black, and you don't, that immediately separates you. So you don't feel like you fit in with people that look like you. But the sad thing is, you've probably always felt that you don't fit in with your family of experience because you don't physically look like them. Yep. So a lot of adoptees express this feeling of, I don't fit anywhere. And as a, a parent who's open to adopting a child who might end up in that path, it's your job to do those things like you mentioned. Understand that there are things that happen. So I think it's also important to note that race is part of your culture, but then each family has their own culture. So you as a white woman and me as a white woman, are so your child has their own experience in your family, your family culture. 
and mine does as well. But then there are some parallels because we are both white homes. So there's, there's then the larger idea that for let's say a black child in one of our homes, they're getting our white family culture and then our specific family culture. But where in there is the culture of a black family? We, do, we generally wouldn't offer that. So doing that work to find what is that and looking in places where you might not even think, like, I don't know that I would have thought that about Thanksgiving dinner. The other thing I'll, I'll add to, um, so I, I was very fortunate and so were you to be able to travel. Um, mm -hmm. And when I was in India, I had my first experience as a white person not being allowed into a store because I was white. Uh, and then I also had my first experience being female on uh, transit in India, often female and men are separated. Um, and so that was just a very different experience. But being um, being discriminated, what that was my first experience, right? Or being in an area that you are the only white person, I would very much implore prospective couples to pursue that prior or even during your adoption process, go to a part of your community um, and have that experience and sit in that because it is very uncomfortable because we've never had that, right? Um, often many of us live in a very white surrounding area. Um, that is what your child experiences every day of their life. Mm -hmm. So I think having that, at least for me, I sit in that a lot of um, how, again, my privilege and um, not being in some of those situations or I've, I've seen a really good one too. Uh, think of the first person of color that you've had as a teacher. And so many of us, right, it's far later on in life or in college, it was never in elementary, middle school that we ever had a person of color as a teacher for us, mm -hmm. which again, that, think about that from a flip perspective of a transracial adoptee. Um, and some of us have never, which is um, even um, more flooring um, and sad. <laughs> mm -hmm. But those are things too um, that we often have to sit in to try and I guess gauge uh, and understand an experience that is not ours. Um, because like I said, often we forget that. It's significant for families to know that. So as a white person, everywhere you go, you can find somebody in your community that is successful and you can look up to and see yourself in. So maybe it's that I go to the pediatrician and I see this beautiful, smart, successful woman pediatrician. And I am like, that could be me. She looks like me. I want to be her when I grow up. But if I'm not seeing examples of people who look like me that I can identify with in positions of power or success, what I'm going to start to do is feel like I can't have that that that's not for people who look like me. That's an important thing to recognize, particularly as a white person who hasn't had a lot of education or experience um, not being the majority. That's an uncomfortable place to be and it might not be overt. A five-year-old's not gonna tell you, why don't I see any pediatricians that look like me? But those messages are on internalized day to day to day to day. So if you are thinking of doing this, and you're feeling like, oh, I have so many, um, you know, successful people of color around me that I can expose my child to, 
what are you deeming somebody of color that's successful? And how often are those encounters happening? Let's say it's your mailman that comes every day. That's great. That's one level of success. Somebody doing a, a respectable career, um, showing up for work every day, having relationships, is, it's good. But is, is he just delivering the mail? Or are you actually talking to them when they come to the door and saying, thank you for the mail. How are you today? Do you know something about your mailman? So having these organic relationships with those people in your life of color is that second step of, yes, I know people of color versus yes, I have relationships in my life with people of color that my children are seeing and internalizing and then therefore saying, that could be me. I could have that life if I want that. That's a big difference. And I think... From what I hear from families, um, recognizing that, that just, you know, seeing somebody um, on TV or seeing somebody in a storybook is not enough to build a positive sense of who you are in a world that doesn't look like you and is not built to nurture people who look like you. We don't have that experience as white people. And unless we seek that, we don't have to have that. But like you said, for your children, that's every day, all day. Yeah. And I mean, Santa's a great example. Right? Ah, yeah. Santa, white, um, uh -huh. elves even, right? Like um, I also, you know, Disney, you think about the main Disney characters or main Disney princesses or main Disney superhero, right? Like you name it. Um, you think about your your childhood as a white person, right? If you look at it through the lens of someone who is not white, there are very few positive main characters in any Disney main Disney movies. Mm -hmm. And the ones that do exist, often the character does not stay as that black individual. Like I, I just think of the movie Soul, right? They often transform into a different character. Um, I'm trying to think of the other one, like the the other princess movie, Princess and the Frog, right? He becomes a frog for most of the movie. He doesn't stay as that black identity. Um, and so that's something too, to just keep in mind. It's uh, it's sad, like now noticing this as a parent because my child doesn't have very many um, character, like I think about Halloween too, right? Like um, there's so many air quote, like white <laughs> princesses and characters for Halloween. Um, uh, that's also something like that just constantly I'm, I'm, my eyes are opened and lens is opened with that. You also mentioned that for kids of color growing up with white families, um, and we keep referring to this, but I think for people listening, it's important to know that the majority of transracial adoptions are white people adopting children of color. There are plenty of families of color who are adopting children that don't look like them. Um, but historically it was, and again, go back, do some research on history and understand why that is the way that it is. And you will understand a ton about the significance of a lot of what we're talking about here today and how we got to this place. Um, super important to know. Um, but I, I think the, the, the idea of that cloak of whiteness that you mentioned earlier, that, um, if you aren't creating these spaces in your home that reflect your child and encourage your child's racial identity, um, you're going out into the world and everybody sees that. Um, 
in your home, they can be whoever they want. They go into the world and the world sees them for what color their skin is and makes assumptions based on that. And while they are with you, there is a cloak of whiteness that sort of protects them from the world. Um, you know, here's a, a let's say a, a five-year-old black boy walking into a pharmacy with his white mother. And while he's at your side, he might not be looked at suspiciously. The minute he walks an aisle over and you're not there, people look at him completely differently. That same perfect little boy in two different aisles, one with his mom, one without, is completely different in terms of how people perceive and treat them. That in terms of the entire world is what your child experiences. And you can't expect that because you're with them and you can protect them, that that lasts. It doesn't. Children are meant to grow up, leave our homes, have successful lives of their own. We're not there with them. So we can't give them that cloak forever. Often too, adoption will always be brought up. So uh, when you travel with your child, when you take your child to the doctor, you may be asked for adoption identification to verify that you are in fact their parent. Like just wow. things that I think a lot of people don't think about. Um, for us, I think too often biracial children, um, the assumption when my whole family is together is that I cheated outside of my marriage and mm -hmm. now my husband is parenting this child. Um, if one of us is out with, we're often asked if we are the sitter, the aunt, the, right? Um, so the identification thing too really floored me. It just, like I said, taking your traveling with your child, you often, unfortunately, need um, proof that you are, in fact, their parent. Um, I, I feel like part of being a parent is claiming that, these little humans belong to your family and that you are a unit and you feel that, but when you are often forced to prove it, yeah, it's, it's hard. It gets frustrating. It gets infuriating. And we can spin that too, to see that your children are having that same experience. You know, why, why does my mom always get asked if she's my mom? What does that say about me? If I don't belong with her, where do I belong? So that as you're asking, being asked to assert relationship, they are too. And they yep. don't, they don't understand that in the way that we do. And they hear that. I mean, often these things are happening in front of your children, yep. which they're then internalizing that experience. So I think, um, I imagine for your family, there's a lot of conversation about those instances after they happen to help them process through that. Would you say? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. And then I would also say too, just, I want to make sure people who are listening, please follow like adult transracial adoptees. There are so many on like Instagram for sure, who are doing education work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I often tell two prospective families, um, they're not attacking you. Most <laughs> um, yeah. times, right. They're trying to help you be a better parent. Um, so if you feel defensive, sit in why you feel that way. And um, again, just listen. But um, I know Wreckage and Wonder, which is Tori DeMartil, is an amazing person to listen She's to. She's extremely intelligent, competent, well-spoken. She's a great resource. Yeah. 
and Hannah Matthews, um, mm -hmm. Hannah J. Matthews, I think is her Instagram. She also has like curriculum classes that you can purchase and subscription service, I think, and then kits too. Mm -hmm. um, and then Melissa Gouda Richards is a, tran or a uh, transnational adoptee, but um, her Instagram is Adoptee Thoughts and she runs a podcast called Adoptee Thoughts where she interviews other perspectives but she just published her second book this past fall called What White Parents Should Know About Transracial Adoption. I would highly encourage parents to purchase that book in, on Amazon. Um, in addition to it being a good read, there are at the in parts of the book and at the end, a lot of things like takeaways for you to think about and questions that I really love about that book because it's not just something that you read. Um, she provides you things to sit in and think about and um, do right. Like after you read the book, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, those are great resources. I think we can only learn from the next generations too, of mm -hmm. how to be and do better and right. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. No, no parent is period, but let alone like an adoptive parent trying to navigate this, but listening to what went well and like, you know, what didn't. And even like Tori, I love her dearly. Her parents did amazing for, you know, they did a lot of really great things, but she still, you know, as an adult now is navigating her identity and she still struggles. And so mm -hmm. it's her parents helping her navigate that. Oh, and that's another thing, right? Like we often have prospective families think we can like prevent this trauma or prevent some of these things, even too transracially that they may feel or experience. We can't, right? So, um, once you accept that we cannot prevent that, it will happen whether we want it to or not. Um, how can we help walk with this adoptee and navigate their journey um, well, right? Instead of, like I said, the prevention piece, because it's just, the trauma is there. They were mm -hmm. removed from their biological family. Um, their identity was essentially ripped from them, mm -hmm. um, right? And so how can we help them navigate that as they grow up again? Because they don't, they don't stay babies forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the things that has come up a lot when asking what can you do to help make that trauma less painful for your child is one, accept that that's the reality. That no matter what you do, no matter how much you love them, no matter how much you prepare, educate, support, they will still encounter this stuff in the world because that's the world that's we live the world in. We are in. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and that. I've also heard one of the best things, and I think this goes for all parenting, is you are the safe space for your child. So whatever your child brings home to you, receive it. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to make sense of it. You don't have to, um, you know, rally and, and, you know, if it's happening at school, you don't have to be the parent that goes to school and show a force that you're going to fix it. Because again, a lot of these things in the world are so much less about that experience and so much more about how we receive those experiences. Mm -hmm. And all of our children are going to have things in the world that hurt that we have to help them, um, experience process. and yep. process and maybe come up with some ways to, not have that hurt so much when it happens again, maybe figure out when do I need to assert my boundaries and when is it okay to not engage? These are all things that we teach our children in general. But when your child is a child of color, 
there's an entire separate additional box of hurts that yep. they get dumped on them at birth and never go. It just keeps raining on them. Yep. So recognizing that and then recognizing that, like you said, I'm not going to be able to fix a lot of that because I am not in that world. And I might not even understand how to do that. So some things you can do are be that safe space. Don't try to fix, don't judge, don't just hear it. Affirm that they are beautiful and wonderful and they belong and that you are rooting for them. And maybe even go a next step and find somebody in the community that can identify specifically with what they're going through. For example, if you have a biracial child, find a biracial therapist that might look like them. If your child's a boy, find a male therapist that might look like them. Mm -hmm. That safe space where they can say, this is what it's like to be biracial in the world as a male. How do you mm -hmm. work through that? That's excellent. Ask for help, pull some resources. You have tons of good resources. I have yeah. tons of good resources. Social media is a wealth of knowledge. You've given mm -hmm. some great examples of where you can start. Both of our social media accounts, we're sharing tons of information. We can refer anybody listening to more resources to further support that growth. But that building community, being a safe place feels like the best way to aid a child through that. And I think we're finding more and more resources that exist, you know, as the mm -hmm. years go on. It, you know, if you look at 70s and 80s, they're just um, so I'll give you an example like This Is Us is a great TV mm -hmm. show, um, the Colin Ka Kaepernick docuseries. But those parents were raising children in the 70s and 80s transracially. The education they were receiving was very different than the education that we receive now. So, yes, they did a lot of things that make hopefully you cringe as you watch it. Um, but keep in mind, they just we didn't know what we didn't know and they weren't getting great education um, not to like make excuses for their behavior. Well, but in fact, they were being told by people of experience, to, of expertise to, to do these certain things that yep. we know now are ridiculous. But yep. I mean, and I'm sure that there are some things we're doing right now that 15 yeah. years from now, the kids are going to oh. say, wait a minute, you know, your social worker told you to do this and wowza, that was terrible. Yep. So definitely understanding where we came from and knowing that it's different now, but there are still lots of things happening now that still need some adoptees really to come back and say, nope, don't do that. This, this works. That continued conversation is so important. Yeah. I mean, those shows though, I think are great to watch. They're great conversation starters yeah. for you and your significant other, for you and your child, depending on the age. Um, but and yeah, there's a lot of social supports. Never underestimate how important it is to include your sphere of influence in what you're experiencing, because we often find that families will really buckle down and do a lot of work and really build this incredible foundation and incredible relationships among their family members, their immediate family member. Um, but then outside of the home, there's not a lot happening. There's not a lot of conversation or sharing of resources or prompting other family members to read something and then come back and engage with you. So we then encounter a lot of uh, resistance or um, racism um, because our, our circles 
aren't doing the same work we are and we're not asking them to. So how could they know to do it? Or it's almost like we have to invite the people that we want to, to walk this life path with us to walk this part of it with us too and engage in the same resources that, that we're engaging in. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's a hard ask though. Yeah, it is with adoption and yeah, transracial adoption. I feel Mm -hmm. like there's, there are a lot of books and resources out there too. Yeah. For family and friends. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely agree. One of the things you said too, that, that feels important right now is that the, the, the instinct is when you don't agree with something to get defensive. And I think when you're watching something like that docuseries and there's going to be things that you might hear wherever you're at with, with open-mindedness around adoption and, and education around this, you're going to hear and say, well, that's just not right. That's not going to be my child's experience. And yeah, I yeah. would also sorry, you just made me think if your spouse, I often have this, um, if your spouse is not reading or like taking in the material, because I think often I'm generalizing prospective parents, but oftentimes it's the, the female who is really in it or one member of the couple who's mm-hmm. really in the education and the other really doesn't <laughs> too mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. Um, I would really implore you. And even if your spouse or significant other doesn't learn the way that you do find other avenues, if it's like I said, a movie instead of a book, fine, mm-hmm. but um, find other avenues for them to do some of that work that you're doing because they are a person in this household too. And mm-hmm. they are a parent to this child. Um, Cause I often see that un- unfortunately as well of, of one parent that's really in, especially the, the knowledge and education of transracial adoption and the other mm-hmm. that just isn't so. Yeah. And that extends to, to really just basic parenting conversation that there's a lot of disagreement among two people coming together because your experience in life was completely different. The way you were raised, the way that you process, the way that you parent is going to be unique to who you are. But in, in two parent households, you're required to do that parallel. And if you're not linking up over the things that matter, you're going to create dysfunction for your children. And that is just basic discipline. That is basic um, how you talk about certain things, you know, how you uh, discuss, um, how open you are about discussing hard things in your home, Um, adoption, race, transracial adoption. These are all things that before you parent, especially before you parent through adoption should be explored. So I have been telling families, and this has been something that, you know, over the years has really just been so clear, is that the home study process is your first opportunity to do this. Lots Mm -hmm. of things that I asked during that process have probably not been discussed. Um, It's easy to get in a relationship, marry, conduct a household, have a great setup, but not have talked about. Um, how you perceive discipline or what what does adoption look like in our family or how are we going to teach our children about um, the hard things of the world. This process of a home study is the first time for you to just take a breath. Yes, do your checklist. Yes, get everything we need in terms of documentation. But instead of focusing on, well, how fast can we get this done so we can hurry up and get approved and out there and being shown to expectant parents, focus on while we're doing this documentation, we are being forced 
to expose some of these areas that are potentially huge opportunities for growth. And that can't be rushed. I've had families who start the process, they'll say, wow, you know, let's say we watch that documentary. And we were really challenged by a lot of that. And I don't feel like we're in a position right now to make choices about what type of adoption we want to pursue because we really haven't worked through what we learned there. So can we slow the process down and maybe, you know, do our next interview in a month instead of next week when we planned it? That is awesome. Do that. You are not on a schedule to get this done in a matter of weeks. And if you're doing the work to expand your mind while you're doing your home study, that's what it's for. Talk, introspect, journal, join a book club where you're talking about these heavy hitting topics and adoption, watch the documentaries, follow the social media accounts, some families get to that and they're they're ultimately feeling like adoption is not something that they can do well and they decide not to. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> like yep, said, that is okay. I like that as you said again, it is okay to pursue the adoption process and realize this is not the path we thought it was, because mm-hmm. there are lots of misconceptions in TV and movies and just in society of what adoption is. And if you start doing your research and you start learning and you are like, it is totally, I am, I applaud honestly yeah. families who, who start looking at this and say, this is not what I thought it was. I'm not at all capable or prepared and I'm walking away. Mm-hmm. Like I, I actually applaud people who recognize that. Um, yeah, and then I would say too with like the parenting questions, like I'm trying to think of some good examples. <laughs> but yeah, and, and I can't hit this enough of like who you're in your community reflects your child's identity. But the reason those things are important is not only seeing positive um, positive people who are doing you know careers that your child could potentially want to be, but I think about like medical, right? If you don't have someone of color that is in the medical field in your area, you may have your child misdiagnosed. I hate to say that, but like misdiagnosed with things. Um, I'll give you a terrible example, but um, my son's hair follicles started coming in and it it's little dots. It's very common in African-American children, um, but it presents itself for, to a white doctor as like, you know, a potentially other like handful of mouth or something else, right? Yeah. Right. Yep. Or some type of issue. And that's not how it presents on African American skin. But unfortunately, right, we in the medical field in general in the United States, um, doesn't have how it presents in African American. It's just again, right, we live in a very white world. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like I think I just saw a couple maybe a week ago where we I was the first time I had ever seen an African American woman with an African American child in a fetus image, right? I was just thinking, yeah. Right, like, so these are things that just aren't present right now. And so if you don't have those people in your life, you're gonna have these challenges. And Mm -hmm. same with like a therapist for your child, they're not gonna understand, and This Is Us does a really great job in this. Um, Randall, the main character, sees a female therapist and he struggles hard. And he finally recognizes that he needs a male, African-American male, therapist and mm-hmm. and he does wonders once he gets into that and and starts getting into meeting with other adoptees um and connecting with them um on to like ghost kingdom right like where mm-hmm. it's very common for adoptees to 
especially transracial adoptees, to visualize what their adoptive parents might look like or who they are if it's closed. And so Randall, right, I believe it's like the weatherman, he envisions as his biological father when he's a kid. But he doesn't share this with his adoptive parents because he doesn't want them to feel bad and, and all those feelings that come with it. But um, gosh, sorry, I'm clearly, that's such a great show. But there, you know, there's a lot of conversations too. Uh, I think a great one is how are you going to educate your child about police interaction? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because yep. you, you may differ drastically on that. And mm -hmm. why is that? Like, that's a really mm -hmm. great conversation to have. Like, there's just a lot of things in those groups, maybe too, like I said, that'll come up mm -hmm. that you haven't thought about. And like I said, it's so far from an infant, but it's not that far away that it's a really good conversation to have with your significant other. And that, like you said, you are adopting an infant, but our kids are infants for like five seconds. <laughs> and they are grown people having these experiences that we can't protect them from. My husband and I were at the store recently and um, we, my husband's Filipino. So he's, he's half Filipino. So he's a little bit darker skinned and he's had a lot of experiences that um, now living in a majority white community, um, we talk a lot about because when we go to a store together, I can buy something and say, no, thank you. I don't need a receipt and no, thank you. I don't need a bag. I'll just put it in my purse. If I'm a black woman, I can certainly not do that. And if I'm a black man, I can certainly not do that. But that's not something as a white parent, you would know. You would think, what's the big deal? I paid for it. I put it in my purse. I do that all the time. My mom taught me to do that. My grandma did that. Everyone I know does that. People of color do not do that. <laughs> that is because of the culture of policing that we live in. That is very quickly going to turn into, you stole something, show me your receipt. I have you on camera putting it in your purse. So these are things we just, we have to know. We have to know that our kids are going to encounter that if we're adopting transracially. Mm -hmm. It's sad. It's gross. It's, we are doing all we can as advocates for children of color who not have those experiences, but our world is demented in the way that, that it works. And that's what I would implore prospective families and adoptive couples who are listening. Once you get to a level of education, I do wholeheartedly believe that every adoptive parent, good one of a transracial adoptee is also doing advocacy work because yes. at the end of the day, like, yes, it's amazing that you've done this education and you're walking with child. Like I, there are definitely hard parts of that. I get that. But mm -hmm. I think like the whatever the enlightened moment is when you are then taking that and doing some advocacy in it. And that can look different for every family. I'm not saying like, you know, picking at yeah. Yeah. but I'm saying like, you know, do you ask questions of your school sometimes of like, mm -hmm. hey, do um, at your kid's elementary school or the local library, I did this. Um, I went to our local library and I asked for all the adoption books. There was two of them. They were extremely outdated and one was on like Russian adoption, which isn't even a thing in the United States anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and I provided them then a bunch of books, not just adoption related, but where families look different LGBTQI mm -hmm. families, um, families that are of different races or just right built and step parent or whatever. Right. Um, because if we don't have that, I think, I often do like have done local radio interviews and stuff like that, of just how families who are not connected to adoption can help us. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And that I think is huge is, you know, having those conversations with children of like families are built differently. They may look differently. Um, Mm -hmm. And just as a society, I think being a little bit more okay with that. And then hopefully, right. My dream is that I wouldn't have these questions all the time when we go out in public, right. That it's Mm -hmm. just your family and it's accepted. (laughs) Yeah. And that I, I, so my son's five, so he started kindergarten this year and, and we've had a lot of conversations about how kids look differently, how families are made differently. But I am, I'm a social worker and I have a degree in psychology. So I'm very, that's something that I excel in. Um, and I want my children to have that experience, but I, I know that that's not everybody. So there are lots of children going to school who have no concept of that and children of every color don't have necessarily an appreciation that families look different. So I think, as you mentioned, being an advocate, that is a really good place to intervene is your children's school, Um, you know, offering resources, offering to um, come in and talk to the kids about adoption or talk to the kids about how families are different or sharing your skills and your expertise with children is a really good way of supporting your child specifically, but supporting information sharing and normalizing those conversations that not every family has two parents. Not every family has two parents of different genders. Not every family is the same color or, you know, it, we all get that, that whole concept is applicable. And I sometimes like question assignments or I, yeah. I've questioned even a work icebreaker we had a work icebreaker of bring uh, your baby photo in. Well, I have, um, you know, obviously colleagues of mine who are of different color, but I, I would say majority are Caucasian. So you're already othering people who are othered in, you know, na- in picking who their baby photo is. Um, mm-hmm. So often, you know, and even in assignments with school, I'm like, what's the purpose, right? Like, because mm-hmm. um, I feel like, again, you're othering groups of people who are already feel that way. And I also um, posed the question to my child's teacher of, you know, some children don't have baby photos, um, especially trans uh, nationally and, Mm -hmm. or in foster care, right? What, what, again, is that purpose, um, you know, and and think of it differently, right? Like bring a picture of, of, you know, something that you really like, right? Like, Mm -hmm. why can't it be? I think another option is that, so I think, I think in those settings, like we talked about in medical settings, we're asking teachers to understand these concepts that their teaching of how to build a curriculum probably didn't include. So if you're advocating, you are approaching the teacher and saying, hey, my child doesn't fit ideally in this curriculum that you built. So how can we make them fit? And by doing that, we're going to learn that there are lots of other kids in your classroom that also, quote, don't fit or fit differently. So how can I help you with my experience to flex this curriculum so that everybody's feeling included? And I'd say 99% of the time when I bring this up to people, they're like, oh, yep. Right. Like they they didn't even, they weren't even aware of it and I can't even be mad. Um, And 99.9% of the time too, they've changed what they're doing, which is amazing. Um, But I think too, it's saying, here's something I've observed. Like if it's the picture thing, Um, you asked my child to bring in a photo of them when they were a baby and my child doesn't have one. That's one thing to say that. And, you know, I I think sometimes families, uh, parents can approach that with, um, intensity that might put off the teacher you're not doing that in a way that's asking for collaboration 
So if you're presenting it, like here's something that came up for us. I'm not sure how to handle it, but I'm willing to help figure it out. Here's a suggestion I came up with. Maybe instead of asking them to bring a picture, you say, bring a picture or draw a picture of what you think you look like when you were a baby and have that be what they do. But sometimes when we're asking people, and I think that's part of advocacy is you're asking them to do better. You're pointing out the problem, but you're not either saying I can help figure out a solution or here is a potential solution. Yeah, I would definitely say that's huge is coming up with a solution. I do that in work in my day-to-day life too. If you find a problem, I hope to goodness you've thought, given some thought to what the solution is to that. And and if you're the expert too, like when you were talking about with adoption or especially transracial adoption, you are more of an expert than, you know, it's funny because I I think lots of us are hesitant to say we're experts at anything because there's always a million more things to learn. But when you're building like a course for somebody, you have to be 10% more knowledgeable than they are. So if you're going to your child's teacher, wherever you're, you're advocating, and you're 10% more knowledgeable about what you're talking about than they are, then you're the expert. So use that to say, I do know more about this topic than you do. So let me help get you where you need to be. Mm-hmm. That's advocacy. The biggest thing too, that I, I around, and I know this seems so little, but around the holidays or even um, we have a National Crane Foundation, I'm gonna keep knocking them uh, in, in our state. Oh. They have a uh, adopt a crane Ah. and it kills me because my, so my kiddos love, love animals. I love doing like, I love helping people out around the holidays because they're again, holidays are like the adoptive family. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. so I always word it to people like, how do I explain to my adopted child that we are not in fact adopting that crane? Because to her, that means bringing that crane to our house forever Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it is permanent. And instead, we are sponsoring this crane and providing some funds for it to stay at the foundation, right? And it's mm-hmm. the same with like adopting a family for Christmas. You're not yeah. adopting the family and they're not coming home with us permanently. They're not spending the holidays with us. We are sponsoring the fact and buying them some Christmas gifts because they are in a hard time in their life and helping them mm-hmm. in their holiday season, Right. Like important. And I tell people to shift that word. If you don't give them the why, then they just go, oh, I'm just going to keep using the word adapt. But when I say when I put it in the perspective of my child, right, who is trying to understand and navigate what that means for her in her life and how what you are doing in your life is conflicting her. Most times then they go, oh, okay, And And they shift it. And I'm like, thank you. If you're saying the words you're using about this tree, saying adopt a family from this tree is, is being received in our family like this. And here's why most people are going to say, Oh, I had no idea. I didn't know that. But then they're going to say, well, what should I be saying? And if you don't have a way to support them through that, then it's going to be deaf ears. And you're going to see like, well, they didn't change, take any action or they didn't change anything. But you as the expert pointed out, this word in this context is misused. So could we maybe find something else? Here's some thoughts. It gives them a place to get moving in a direction away from this this problematic word. But we definitely have to, and you have to accept that when you adopt, you become that lifelong advocate. It's tiring in a lot of ways because you are asked often to be the teacher. Whether you like it or not. And in transracial adoption, you cannot get away from it. That's the other Mm -hmm. thing that I like 
wish prospective parents knew like you wherever you go you are a poster for adoption whether you like it or not whether you're in the mood or not whether you yeah. want to answer or not like what and and with your child and right in front of you and they are watching you and they are sponges and they are seeing how you are interacting with other people. Can you give us some insight into some of the responses you might use? Oh man. Um, usually I don't. Um, so I always tell people and I've shared a little bit more. I'm, I've been sharing a little more occasionally about just examples today because I think examples are good. Um, education manner, but usually when I'm responding, especially to someone that is not related or out in public, I often give like statistics or numbers because I'm a numbers person in adoption versus sharing my child's story, right? Because oftentimes, and this is a whole other segue, but we as adoptive parents share way more of the story than we should, and that is ours, right? It's your child's story that is really shouldn't be shared. Um, but I often, you know, the number one questions I get of like, right, why were they placed? And it's often conversation about the birth parents. So I often will just say, oh, you know, the average woman who makes an adoption plan, she's actually in her late 20s. I'm not saying anything about my child's birth mom. Mm -hmm. And I'm also countering what their perception in their head is because I know it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's true, right? So I'm giving them some information. They've learned something. And I haven't shared so much about my child's story. Um, I think for transracial adoption, the number one thing I get is people touching his hair. Um, I don't know why that is a thing, but it, and people don't believe me, I think sometimes too, unless they've actually experienced it or are a part of the black community. Um, but I will often, depending on my mood, I will, well, one, I'll ask them not to. And once he's old enough, he's kind of starting to get there. He'll be able to verbalize that on his own. Um, but for those that I really want to educate or hammer at home to, depending on my mood, I will, um, again, I like history. Um, so I will talk about how in the United States, we used to have circuses where white people would pay to touch African-American skin and hair. Um, yeah, it's mortifying, but you can read about it. And I like to mortify people occasionally because it sticks in their head and I hope that they yeah. never do it again. Yeah. Um, and I talk about how we even did this post-mortisly. So like African-Americans that have passed away, white people would pay to touch their skin and hair. And how, why, right, this is so extremely inappropriate on so many levels, right, to mm -hmm. touch his hair. And I hope that that drives the point home. Um, I don't obviously like, you know, there's a whole other layer of our history of our country, mm -hmm. but that I feel like really points out like this, you do not own this child. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, We're not at a circus. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, and it yeah. is not appropriate ever. Mm -hmm. And I think um, oftentimes two people make excuses to, oh, like his hair yeah. looks so painful and that, I don't need the excuses. And I often mm -hmm. shut that down real quick of, I don't see you touching any other child's hair. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if you were to, right, you would cringe it, I think, right? Because it's mm -hmm. not your child. And I just compare it, right? If you're going to go, would you go up to another child that's white and, and that you don't know and touch their hair? No, it I'm makes you cringe. Like, in your head. So why is it appropriate or okay for you to do that to a black child? And like, it's almost like when this person touches your child, you should just reach over and touch their hair. Like that's not socially acceptable. You don't do that. Yeah. I haven't had the audacity quite to do that. I have heard other parents do that. Um, I would love to see that. <laughs> but I, that, that is, it is odd. It's an odd phenomenon, but that is universally true. Any black person will tell you that, that even adults, they, yes, they, they think 
people think that you can just, it, it's similar to the pregnant women who say yeah. that people have no boundaries and will just touch your belly. Strangers will touch your belly. Like those are boundaries that for some reason, those are two scenarios where people feel like it's appropriate to just jump right over. It's offensive. Stop doing that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Yeah. And then that's, like I said, to um, arming your child once they're old enough with appropriate responses too. And obviously yeah. they'll come up with their own, they're their own yeah. people, but yeah. helping them. Right. Because uh, again, navigating over sharing and like, I've mm -hmm. already had conversations with my daughter about what she wants to share and what she can hold herself. And um, because she's little and she doesn't know quite yet, right. Like what to yeah. tell and what not to. And um, so those are things, right. That they'll navigate as they grow older. And that's, again, your purpose as a parent is to help them navigate their story and how they want it shared and who they're sharing it with and things like that. Um, mm. This is not about you. This is about you helping your child. Yeah, definitely. Well, Paige, I thank you so much for being willing to talk with me about your experiences with transracial adoption, both personally and professionally. I'm really grateful that you were willing to share that. So much to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you.